of section six of little journeys to the homes of great scientists this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org little journeys to the homes of great scientists by albert hubbard chapter three part two copernicus from bologna copernicus then moved on to padua where he remained two years teaching and giving lectures. Here he devoted considerable time to chemistry, and on leaving, he was honored by being given a degree by the university. Next we find him at Rome, a professor in mathematics, and also giving lectures on chemistry. His lectures were not for the populace. They were for the learned few. But they attracted the attention of the best, and were commented upon and quoted by the various other teachers, preachers, and lecturers. A daring thinker who expresses himself without reservation states the things that various others know and would like to state if they dared. It is often very convenient when you want a thing said to enclose the matter in quotation marks. It relieves one from the responsibility of standing sponsor for it, if the hypothesis does not prove popular. Copernicus was only 19 years old when Columbus discovered America but it seems he did not hear of Columbus until he reached Bologna in 1495. At Rome, he made various references to Columbus in his lectures, dwelt upon the truth that the earth was a globe, mentioned the obvious fact that in sailing westward, Columbus did not sail his ship over the edge of the earth into hell, as it had been prophesied he would. He also explained that the red sky at sunset was not caused by the reflections from hell, nor was the sun moved behind the mountain by giant angels at night. Copernicus was a Catholic, as all teachers were, but he had been deceived by the esoteric and the exoteric, and had really thought that the priests and so-called educated men actually desired for themselves to know the truth. At Padua he had learned to read Greek, and had become more or less familiar with Pythagoras, Hipparchus, Aristotle, and Plato. He quoted these authors and showed how in some ways they were beyond the present. This was all done in the exuberance of youth, with never a doubt as to the value and beauty of the church. But he was thinking more of truth than the church, and when a cardinal from the Vatican came to him, and in all kindness cautioned him, and in love explained that it was all right for man to believe what he wished, but to teach others things that were not authorized was a mistake. Copernicus was abashed and depressed. He saw then that his lectures had really been for himself, he was endeavoring to make things plain to Copernicus, and the welfare of the church had been forgotten. He ceased lecturing for a time, but private pupils came to him, and among them astrologers in disguise, and these went away and told broadcast that Copernicus was teaching that the movements of the stars were not caused by angels, and that God was being dethroned by a tape measure and a yardstick. Alchemy had a stronghold upon the popular mind, and these alchemists and astrologers were fortune-tellers and derived a goodly income from the people. They had their stands in front of all churches and turned in a goodly tithe for the benefit of the poor. When the astrologers attacked Copernicus, he tried to explain that the heavens were under the reign of natural law, and that so far as he knew there was no direct relationship between the stars and men upon earth. The answer was, you yourself foretell the eclipse, 
and assume to know when a star will be in a certain place a hundred years in advance. Now, if you can prophesy about stars, why can't we foretell a man's future? Copernicus proudly declined to answer such ignorance, but went on to say that alchemy was a violence to chemistry as much as astrology was to astronomy. In chemistry, there were exact results that could be computed by mathematics and foretold. It was likewise so in astronomy. Copernicus was philosopher enough to know that astrology led to astronomy, and alchemy led to chemistry, but he said all he wished to do was to eliminate error and find the truth, and when we have ascertained the laws of God in reference to these things, we should discard the use of black cats, goggles, peaked hats, red fire, and incantations. These things were sacrilege, and the enemy declared that Copernicus was guilty of heresy in saying they were guilty of sacrilege. Moreover, black cats were not as bad as blackboards. The Pope certainly had no idea of treating Copernicus harshly. In fact, he greatly admired him. But peace was the thing desired. Copernicus was creating a schism, and there was danger that the revenues would be affected. The Pope sent for Copernicus, received him with great honor, blessed him, and suggested that he return at once to his native town of Thorn, and there await good news that would come to him soon. Copernicus was overwhelmed with gratitude. He was in difficulties. Certain priests had publicly denounced him. Others had urged him on to this unseemliness and debate. He had stated things he could not prove, even though he knew they were true. But the Pope was his friend. He loved the Church. He felt how necessary it was to the people, and at the last the desire of his heart was to bless and benefit the world. He fell on his knees and attempted to kiss the Pope's foot, but the Holy Father offered him his hand instead, smiled on him, stroked his head, and an attendant was ordered to place about his neck a chain of gold with a crucifix that would protect him from all harm. A purse was placed in his hand, and he was sent upon his way, relieved, happy, wondering, wondering. When Copernicus reached his native town of Thorn, the local clergy turned out in a procession to greet him, and a solemn service of thanksgiving was held for his safe return home. Copernicus was only 27 years of age, and what he had done was not quite clear to his uncle, the bishop, and the other dignitaries, but word had come from the secretary of the Pope that he should be honored, and it was also done in faith, love, and enthusiasm. Very shortly after this, Copernicus was made canon of the Cathedral of Frauenburg, the town of Frauenburg has now only about 2,500 people, and it certainly was no larger then. The place is slow, sleepy, and quite off the beaten track of travel. When Canon Copernicus preached now, it was to a dear, stupid lot of old market women and overworked men and mischievous children. Oratory is a collaboration. Let him wax eloquent about the procession of the equinoxes, and prayed of Plato and Pythagoras if he wished. But no one could understand him. Rome is wise. The crystallized experience of centuries is hers. Responsibility tames a man. Marriage, political office, churchly preferment. Read history and note how these things have dulled the bright blade of revolution and turned the radical into a Presbyterian professor at Princeton, a staunch upholder of the established order. 
Plato said that solar energy found one of the forms of expression in man. Some men are much more highly charged with it than others. Your genius is a man who does things. Do not think to dam up the red current of his life. He may die. Copernicus set to work practicing medicine and gave his services gratis to the poor who came from many miles to consult him. He went from house to house and ordered his people to clean up their backyards, to ventilate their houses, to bathe and be decent and orderly. He devised a system of sewerage and utilized the belfry of his church as a water tower so as to get a water pressure from the little stream that ran near the town. The remains of this invention are to be seen there in the church steeple even unto this day. King Sissamund of Poland had heard of the attacks made by Copernicus upon the alchemists and sent for him that he might profit by his advice. It seems that the king, too, had been having experience with the alchemists. In their seeking after a way to make gold out of the baser metals, they had actually succeeded. At least they said so, and had made the king believe it. They had shown the king how they could cheapen his coinage one half, and it was just as good. The king could not tell the difference when the coins were new, but alas, when they went beyond the borders of Poland, they could only be passed at one half their face value. Travelers refused to accept them, and even the merchants at home were getting afraid. Copernicus analyzed some of this money made for the king by his alchemist friends and found a large alloy of tin, copper, and zinc. He explained to the king that by mixing the metals they did not change their nature nor value. Gold was gold, and copper was copper. God had made these things and hid them in the earth, and men might deceive some men a part of the time, but there was always a retribution. Debase your currency, and soon it will cease to pass current. No law can long uphold a fictitious value. The king urged Copernicus to write a book on the subject of coinage. The permission of the Pope was secured and the book written. The work is valuable yet, and reveals a deep insight into the heart of things. The man knew political economy and foretold that a people who debase their currency debase themselves. Money is character, he said, and if you pretend it is one thing and it turns out to be another, you lose your reputation and your own self-respect. No government can afford to deceive the governed. If the people lose confidence in their rulers, a new government will spring into being, built upon the ruins of the old. Government and commerce are built on confidence. Then he went on to show that German gold was valuable everywhere, because it was pure, but Polish gold and Russian gold were below par, because the money had been tampered with, and as no secrets could be kept long, the result was the matter exactly equalized itself, save that Russians and Polanders had in a large degree lost their characters through belief in miracles. Copernicus advocated a universal coinage, to be adopted by all civilized nations, and the amount of alloys should be known and publicly stated, and this alloy should simply be the seniorage, or what was taken out to cover the cost of mintage. King Sigismund circulated the valuable book by Copernicus among all the courts of Europe, and it need not be stated that the suggestions made by Copernicus have been adopted by civilized nations everywhere. The humdrum duties of a country clergyman did not still the intense longing of Copernicus to know and understand the truth. 
He visited the sick, closed the eyes of the dying, kept his parish register, but his heart was in mathematics, and so there is shown at Thorn an old church register kept by Copernicus, where, in the back, are great rows of figures put down by the master as he worked at some astronomical problem. In the upper floor of the barn, back of the old dilapidated farmhouse where he lived for forty years, he cut holes in the roof and also apertures in the sides of the building through which he watched the movements of the stars. He lived in practical isolation and exile, for the church had forbidden him to speak in public except on themes that the Holy Fathers in their wisdom had authorized. None was to invite him to speak, read his writings, or hold converse with him except on strictly church matters. Copernicus knew the situation. He was a watched man. For him there was no preferment. He knew too much. As long as he kept near home and did his priestly work, all was well. But a trace of ambition or hearsay, and he would be dealt with. The universities and all prominent churchmen were secretly ordered to leave Copernicus and his vagaries severely alone. The stars were his companions. They came out for him nightly and moved in majesty across the sky. They do me great honor, he said. I am forbidden to converse with great men, but God has ordered for me a procession. When the whole town slept, Copernicus watched the heavens and made minute records of his observations. He had brought with him from Rome copies made by himself from the works of the prominent Greek astronomers and the almagest of Ptolemy he knew by heart. He digested all that had been written on the subject of astronomy. Slowly and patiently, he tested every hypothesis with his rude and improvised instruments. Surely God will not damn me for wanting to know the truth about his glorious works, he used to say. Emerson once wrote this. If the stars came out but once in a thousand years, how men would adore. But before he had written this, Copernicus had said, to look up at the sky and behold the wondrous works of God must make a man bow his head and heart in silence. I have thought and studied and worked for years, and I know so little. All I can do is to adore when I behold this unfailing regularity, this miraculous balance and perfect adaptation. The majesty of it all humbles me to the dust. It was ostracism and exile that gave Copernicus the leisure to pursue his studies in quiet, undiverted, undisturbed. He was relieved from financial pinch, having all he needed for his simple, homely wants. The mental distance that separated him from his parishioners made him free, and the order that he should not travel and that none should visit him made him master of his time. There were no interruptions. God has set me apart, he wrote, that I may study and make plain his works, but still, that he could not make his discoveries known was a constant, bitter disappointment to him. In astronomy, he found a means of using his mighty mathematical genius for his own pleasure and amusement. The Pope had, in seeking to subdue him, merely supplied the exact conditions he required to do his work, yet neither knew it. So mighty is destiny, we work for one thing and fail to get it, but in our efforts we find something better. 
The simple, hard-working gardeners with whom Copernicus lived had a reverent awe for the great man. They guessed his worth, but still had suspicions of his sanity. The nightly vigils that took for a sort of religious ecstasy and a wholesome fear made them quite willing not to do anything that might disturb him. So passed the days away, and from a light-hearted, ambitious man, Copernicus had grown old and bowed and nearly blind from constant watching of the stars and writing at night. But his book, The Revolution of the Heavenly Bodies, was at last complete. For forty years he had worked at it, and for twenty-seven years, he himself says, not a day or night had passed without his having added something to it. He felt that he had in his book told the truth. If men wanted to know the facts about the heavens, they would find them here. He'd approached the subject with no preconceived ideas. He had ever been willing to renounce a theory when he found it wrong. He knew what all other great astronomers had taught, and out of them all he had built a science of astronomy that he knew would stand secure. But what should he do with all this mass of truth he had discovered? It was in his own brain, and it was in the 3,000 pages of this book, which had been rewritten five times. In a few years at most, his brain would be stilled in death, and in five minutes, ignorance and malice might reduce the book to ashes, and the forty years' labor of Copernicus, working, dreaming, calculating, weeping, praying, would all go for naught, and be but a tale that is told. Others might have lived such lives, and known as much as he, and all was lost. To send the book frankly to Rome and ask the censor for the privilege to publish it was out of the question entirely. The request would be refused, the manuscript destroyed, and his own life might be in danger. To publish it at home without the consent of his bishop would be equally dangerous. There would be a bonfire of every copy in the public square, for in this volume, all that the priests taught of astronomy had been contradicted and refuted. And then it occurred to him to send the manuscript to the free city of Nuremberg, the home of science, art, and free speech, where men could print what they thought was truth. Nuremberg, the home of Albrecht Dürer. With the book he sent a bag of gold, his savings of a lifetime, to pay the expense of printing the volume and putting it before the world. To better protect himself, Copernicus wrote a preface, dedicating the book to the Pope Paul, thus throwing himself upon the mercy of his holiness. He would not put the work out anonymously, as his friends in Nuremberg for their own safety had advised, and neither would he flee to Nuremberg for protection. He would stay at home. He was too old to travel now. Besides, he had forgotten how to talk and act with men of talent. How would Rome receive the book? He could only guess. He could only guess. The months went by, and fear, anxiety, and suspense had their sway. He was stricken with fever. In his delirium, he called aloud, The book! Tell me! They surely have not burned it! You know I wrote no word but truth! Oh, how could they burn my book! But on May twenty-third, 1543, a messenger came from Nuremberg. He carried a copy of the printed book. He was admitted to the sick room and placed in the hands of the stricken man the volume. A gleam of sanity came to Copernicus. He smiled, and taking the book, gazed upon it, stroked its cover as though caressing it. 
opened it and turned the leaves. Then closing the book and holding it to his heart, he closed his eyes and sank to sleep to awake no more. His body was buried with simple village honors and laid to rest beneath the floor of the cathedral where he had so long ministered, side by side with a long line of priests. On the little slab that marked his resting place, no mention was made of the mighty work he had done for truth. There were fears that when the character of his book was known, the grave of Copernicus would not remain undisturbed, and so the inscription on the headstone was simply this, Ask not the grace accorded to Paul, not that given to Peter. Give me only the favor which thou didst show to the thief on the cross. End of section 6 Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard